Hi, I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. This is a reminder that we're going on tour next summer. Yes, that's right. We're going on tour. The Living Undeterred U.S. Tour 2022. We're leaving on May 9th next summer. We're going to every state and we're raising a million dollars. That's the plan to change the narrative on mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. We need your help though. I cannot do this alone. I know there's a lot of people out there interested in this uh, project of ours. You can go to our website, www.livingundeterred.com. We need volunteers. We need state partnerships. We need sponsors. We need as many people as we can to get out there and help those people that need help to change the narrative on mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. Again, go to livingundeterred.com and click on the Living Undetoured icon, and all the information is there. Again, thank you very much for the support, and as always, keep living undeterred. Hello, this is Jeff Johnston. Um, I'm very excited tonight. I have a super show. This is my last podcast for the Living Undeterred podcast for 2021. Uh, today is, um, well, all sense of purposes, it's the 1st of December. And um, next week after this show posts, uh, Molly's putting together a best of, uh, of Living Undeterred for the year. What an awesome, fun year I had. I started this journey a year ago. Uh, I know a lot of podcasts have been out for five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 years. Uh, Living Undeterred has been one year. And to say it's been life altering and life inspiring would be an understatement. I am continuously humbled and honored of the people I'm meeting each day. I mean, if I can't find inspiration in hearing other people's stories, then I certainly am not paying uh, enough attention, uh, well enough attention. So uh, today's show is, is, is a show I was really excited about and I've been wanting to do this for a while. And I figured to end the year, this would be a great opportunity to do this. And by the way, this is my Judas Priest Christmas holiday shirt. And again, I got Iron Maiden behind me. So uh, I'm a heavy metal dude. I think everybody knows that. Uh, I've had people say, hey, Jeff, I remember your, I don't remember what you do, but I remember the Iron Maiden banner behind you. So anyway, something's working at least. Um, but I've grown up in the, in the, you know, I went to high school in the 80s, graduated in 84 from Solon. Uh, always enjoyed uh, rock music. My older brother, Steve, is still a professional guitarist down in Ed Edwardsville, Illinois. Plays for one of the largest uh, Elton John tribute bands in the country. Matter of fact, he was a guest. All, all three of my brothers have been guests on, our, on my Living Undeterred podcast. Um, what a diverse group of brothers. I got one who hunts ghosts and one who's a national sales rep for a big fishing company and the other one's a professional musician. So who knows what I do? I, I, I'm kind of do a bunch of things. So, uh, I think the four of us have some interesting stories. Um, but with that, what I decided to do for my last show of the year <clears throat> is do a show called ask Jeff. And I'm not claiming I have answers. Uh, I have more questions than I have answers, but I get asked so many questions by people that have been guests by the uh, hosts that have interviewed me on different shows. Uh, I was on over 
close to 30 or 35 different uh, podcasts and interviews uh, the first year I did this. I get asked a lot of questions. You know, Jeff, how do you do this? What motivated you to this? Blah, 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 blah. People have read my book and they've sent me emails questioning on my belief structure and things or lack of belief, I guess, is one way to look at it. So I thought this is a really neat show. And what I've done is I went back and I watched some podcasts. I got a lot of emails on LinkedIn. I got a lot of direct messages. Um, I listened to a few shows I was on and I, I pulled some of the top questions that I had that were asked of me uh, during some of my shows. And I've got about 11 or 12 today and I want to keep this around an hour or so. I really don't know how long this is going to take. Hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Happy holidays. Christmas is coming up. What a great time of year to be with family and be thankful for uh, all we have and um, to be grateful for the relationships we had with those that we have lost. Uh, I don't need to beat, a, beat this uh, drum too much, but I think for those of you new to my story uh, and those of you that have been around for a while, uh, bear with me. Uh, we lost our son, Seth, to a heroin overdose on October 4, 2016. And uh, recently, approximately five months ago, I lost my wife. And then unfortunately, two weeks ago, my mom of 89 years died. So in the, in, in the, in the time frame of five years, I lost, we lost our son, my wife, and my mom. That, that's a lot. <laughs> Uh, and then sprinkled in that, uh, the day before my mom passed away, we put our cat down of 16 years. So for some odd reason, uh, and again, there isn't a reason. It's just was the time for all these people to go and someday it'll be my time to go. And that's kind of how it works. Um, there's not a lot of certainties in life, but there are, there's one big one. I can't remember if it was Ben Franklin or, uh, Mark Twain that said death and taxes are the only two certain things in life. And that is so true. Uh, but, you know, death is inevitable, and I'm going to sprinkle in my thoughts on death as I go through these questions. So without much further ado, let's uh, go ahead and start the Ask Jeff episode. Here's my first question on the Ask Jeff episode. Jeff, what are three books you would recommend reading? Great question. This may surprise some of you. I have a lot of books. I'm a compulsive reader. Uh, a lot of this happened after Seth died. I got really heavy into reading. And I don't read uh, read uh, fiction. Uh, I'm not into made-up stories. Uh, that's never been something I've, I've always, other than maybe Lord of the Rings and Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that, you know, medieval lore and things that um, had some mythology to it, uh, I, I've never really been into fiction. So most of what I read are biographies, autobiographies, um, you know, business implementation strategy stories, lots of motivational stories. Um, I'm trying to think to myself when I read a book, what am I trying to get out of this book? Uh, and right now at the stage of my life at 55 years old, I'm not trying to get distracted. I'm not trying to get lost in thought. Matter of fact, I'm actually trying to avoid that. Uh, uh, consciously and subconsciously because meditation teaches you or shows you or reveals to you what it's like to get lost in thought. And so often we just walk through life every day just overwhelmed with thought. And we all have the same 24 hours. You know, nobody has any special deal. But what you do up here is so important to how you enjoy life, how you enjoy your day, your, your, your days that you have, you know, we're all, I'm 55. It's like, I, 
I have like 35 good years, 30 years. So I don't want to waste any time. You know, it's one of the things I'm going to talk about in the question. So let's get to the three books. The first book I'm going to mention, I don't have a copy of it today. And it's arguably the greatest book I've ever read in my life. And that's Viktor Frankl's Man Search for Meaning. And I stumbled on this book at a Barnes and Noble, I think. My son was at a golf tournament and I was intrigued. Uh, he was an Auschwitz survivor, concentration camps. Uh, and he talks about, you know, other than some, some luck, you know, how he got out of there alive. And not only that, but how he made himself a better person, not a bitter person, which I thought was an awesome way to look at this. So Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, I think is required reading. Um, it doesn't have a religious theme to it. It doesn't have a an agenda. It's not trying to sell a 90-day boot camp or some motivational speaking tour. It's it's an authentic book written by a, a real, a real superhero, a real, a real hero, someone who who um, I think has kind of got it figured out uh, and as easily could have been in a position where being in the concentration camps um, would have been a really great excuse the rest of his life to um, to suffer. And he said in his book a quote that I really like, um, and I was uh, actually at the pool reading the book when. I, I read this paragraph or the sentence and I just, um, my son was golfing and I stayed back uh, to read the book. And I read this sentence that said, suffering is my opportunity. And it hit me really hard. I mean, I've never had a sentence hit me. I just sat up, I shut the book and I said, holy crap. What a great way to look at life. Suffering is my opportunity. It's not a curse. It's not what was me. It's not why did this happen to me? And something clicked inside of me. Now, this was after Seth had died. This was, I think, two years, three years after Seth has died. Ian graduated high school in 2019. Seth died in 16. So you know, this was three years into, um, into Seth's death. And I thought, what a great sentence. Suffering is my opportunity. So I, re I restructured it and I've come up with something that's my own. And my own phrase that I like to use, which eventually will be a tattoo, well, is pain is unavoidable, but suffering is a choice. And so I've been very much interested in this idea of chosen suffering, um, you know, versus the uh, antithesis would be unchosen suffering. You know, that would be things that you don't have any control over, uh, cancer and car wrecks, things like that that you don't have any control over. But most of the suffering we have, uh, if you take the average person that's watching this uh, episode and think of the suffering that they're going through, probably the majority of it is self-induced or self-imposed or self-regulated. Um, and I think that is something that I learned from the book is that I can't do anything about the pain of losing Seth Prudence and my mom, Jerry. But I certainly can do a lot about the length of time and how I choose to suffer. Huge part of that book that caught my attention. So that's my book number one that I think is the, what the, arguably the best book I've ever read in my life. Number two, and this will surprise people, maybe it won't, is Neil Peart, Neil Peart's, I've been calling him Neil Peart my whole life, but I guess it's Neil Peart, the uh, singer for, or <laughs> singer, the, the, the drummer from Rush, the band uh, Rush, which I think is the greatest rock band of all time. Uh, three just phenomenal musicians and humans that just kind of got together by accident. Um, 
and, and ended up being one of the greatest influential rock bands of all time. And Neil, Neil Peart's regarded as the greatest drummer of all time. Um, and there's not a lot of debate on that. But what really struck me with Neil's book, you would think, and he's got a number of books. I mean, this guy's a freaking renaissance man. This guy was such an introvert growing up that he would sit in the library and just read Shakespeare and read, read all these different books and just became a sponge. And he's an extremely articulate person. But what, what really gripped me, and what's great about this book, is Neil's daughter died from a car accident. I think she was 18 or 19. That's the first similar part you know, that, that I had with him, that he lost a child. Um, now his was completely you know, accidental, um, whereas our son's was self-induced, for lack of a better way to look at it. Um, it was preventable, let's say that. I don't think Neil's daughter's was preventable. And then his wife died shortly after that of cancer, which again was unpreventable. Uh, whereas in my case, and again, I'll, I'll be sensitive to how, how Prudence died, but I think what I've been telling people is grief takes a tremendous toll on, on, different, on, on people differently. And um, my, my wife struggled with the death of Seth, you know, to be blunt. Uh, this whole show is about vulnerability, and so... I'm not really sure what's the best way to dance around that, but the reality is she really struggled immensely with Seth's death, as do many people do, as, as did I. But I found a way about a year into it that, that I needed to change things, and so here I am today, but, but she couldn't, and um, uh, I'll, I'll honor her that way by saying that she fought the best fight that she could fight. And, and, um, but again, so Neil Peart lost a daughter and his wife, in like a three-year time span. And so I'm thinking to myself, you know, I, I lost um, my son and my wife in, in a five-year, four-and-a-half time span. And what Neil did was amazing. He got on his motorcycle. He's an avid, he's an avid, avid, avid writer. You can see I took a lot of notes, and it's a, it's a great, unbelievable read. What a great writer. And he um, rode 55,000 miles on his bike. He basically quit Rush for a while, went off tour, and uh, Alex and Getty were perfectly okay with this. Uh, they were really concerned about his well-being. And he drove his motorcycle around not just the country, but he went, I think, from uh, Vancouver to Belize, you know, and wrote a book on it, 55,000 miles. And he didn't really have an agenda or a goal. He just said, I need to go figure things out and got on his bike and left. You know, it's just awesome. I just, I love stories like that. And that's how he dealt with it. His coping mechanism was to get on his motorcycle. And so in a way, I kind of look at the tour next summer, you know, kind of similar. You know, obviously I'm going to be in an RV and I'm going for 95 days. You know, he, he rode a motorcycle for 55,000 miles. Um, so his is a much more uh, endurance-based than mine, but mine will be mentally tough. No question, it won't be physically tough, but... So a lot of similarities, great book, very motivating, very inspirational. Um, and then unfortunately, you know, a couple of years ago, Neil got cancer himself and died. So very impactful book in my life. Uh, and then the other one that I really like for me is, haha, my book. <laughs> this one's for you, An Inspirational Journey Through Addiction, Death, and Meaning. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, I'm, not, I'm a little biased. I think I have a little bit of a vested interest in this book, but... I poured my life into it, uh, and it's an inspirational read. I, I have people that have ordered the book that have told me they haven't read it yet, and I, I understand. I, I've got books from people that have been, 
you know, rape victims and cancer victims and stuff. And, and I haven't read them yet either. I understand it's sensitive and you just got to find the right time. But I can tell you that it is a very good read. It is uplifting and inspirational. Uh, I do think it's, 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 um, uh, a book that, um, when you put it down, you're going to want to be doing something inspired in your life. It's not going to depress you and, and keep you down. I do have to start off with the abyss. I get into the day he died, talked about how my wife and I handled that or didn't handle it, uh, navigated through that, that first year of dealing with it with, you know, at that time, a 13 and a 15 year old sons that lost an older brother, you know, trying to keep them the right, the ship, keep my marriage together. Um, my wife and I both were alcoholics before this and we, we got worse. Um, and I, it got dark. I mean, it got really dark a year after Seth died. Uh, you know, our marriage was starting to crumble and drinking was getting worse. And, but then again, I had to go to work and put on a face and run a, run an investment company and do all the things that we have to do publicly to make it look like we're holding our lives together when in reality, um, I wasn't, but here I am, you know, five years, uh, a little over five years since he died. And I can honestly say with a lot of work, a lot of work. I'm in the best place I've ever been in my life, emotionally, hands down, hands down. Um, never better. Um, I've got control of my faculties. If I, I'm in really good shape for me. I work out an hour a day, meditate 15, 20 minutes a day, uh, things I'll talk about. But those are the books I really like. Um, so again, it was Man's Search for Meaning, Ghost Rider by Neil Peart, and this one's for you by me. And then one other book I'll throw in there that maybe a little confrontational, The Moral Landscape by Sam Harris. I love Sam Harris. Um, he, he probably, you probably either love him or you hate him uh, because he is, uh, he is uh, one of the leading agnostics or atheists out there. And um, uh, immediately that turns off a lot of people uh, that aren't that way. But um, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about my faith and, and uh, things that I, I believe in and how I behave. And the show is about trying to help people. I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life. Uh, we all uh, can look at other people's mistakes and other people's successes and learn from these things. Um, they don't have to be death nails in our coffins every time something bad happens. So those are my books. Uh, I, I love them. Man's Search for Meaning, This One's for You, and Ghost Rider by Neil Peart, and then The Moral Landscape by Sam Harris. So great question. Question number two, what are two pieces of advice you would give to parents who have had a child struggling with addiction? And then also my thoughts on what is called harm reduction. Great, great question. I get this, I get this probably the number one question I get. Jeff, I have a 16 year old that's, you know, cutting herself and uh, she's taking, she f took a bunch of pills trying to commit suicide or I've got a, a 18 year old son who's dropped out of college and he's smoking pot and he's, you know, talking about conspiracy theories and the Illuminati and, or I've got a, a husband who's, you know, addicted to, you know, uh, Oxycontin and um, he had surgery, but he's addicted to this stuff. What do I do? So great, 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 great question. Uh, there are more than two pieces of advice here. And I'll tell you right now, there is nothing more helpless than watching a loved one implode in front of your eyes. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's the most helpless feeling in the world. Anything that involves you, you can, you can do something about it. I decided to quit drinking December 24th, 2017. I just decided I was tired of being tired. And it's been one of the easiest things I've ever done in my life. I've, never, I've not had one moment of weakness since I quit. 
That's atypical. Most alcoholics can't say that, uh, or if they do, they're lying. Um, I, I don't consider myself in a war with alcohol. I'm in a war with life. <laughs> I'm in a battle with trying to get to tomorrow, uh, and alcohol's not on the list of things I'm, I'm fearing. So somehow I found a way to conquer that, and I talk about it in the book. I write about it on my blogs. I talk to alcoholics every single day, and, and they're curious on how I'm able to do this. And, and again, I'm curious too. I, I can't explain. I cannot honestly explain um, why I'm wired that way. Uh, so here are the two pieces of advice I would give to parents who have a child struggling with addiction. I think this is the most important thing. It's probably the hardest thing. Be honest at all, at all times. All times. Be honest. You'll have more regrets being dishonest or deceptive than you ever will being honest. And being honest Quite often, as we tell our kids, you know, it's going to suck telling the truth immediately. But as time goes on, that that hurt that you have and being honest with somebody or the guilt you have or the pain, it is replaced by a feeling of liberation or honor or respect to yourself. You know, lying is a is a horrible thing. I I've lied many times in my life, and I can honestly tell you, I suck at it. I have attention deficit, so. There's an old saying that says, <laughs> a friend of mine, Greg Bosch, used to say this all the time, well, you don't need a good memory if you always tell the truth. And I'm like, well, yeah, I don't have a good memory. I have attention deficit. If I, would, I, could, I couldn't lie very well because I would screw up and get caught. And that's just the honest truth with me. I, I would be a terrible liar. Uh, and how stressful it is to always have to remember your lies and, and um, remember who you told a lie to. And so I think being honest is the first thing I would say. And um, I think the person who is battling with the addiction, if you are honest with them, they may not like you, but they will respect you. And at the end of the day, this isn't about being a friend. That's not your job as a parent. Your job is to be a parent. And they have friends. They can, if they want a pet, they can buy a cat. You know, they can go talk to their neighbor, their uh, their um, uh, um, classmates. You know, coworkers. Those are friends. You're a parent. Your, your obligation is their best interest, their, their healthy best interest. That, that's your obligation. And uh, so that's number one, be honest at all times. Number two, love them, but do not enable them. Wow. <laughs> that's tough. Um, Steve Grant's a really good friend of mine. And Steve's been a mentor to me. Talked to Steve many times. He lost his only two sons, Chris and Kelly, to overdoses, I think, like six or seven years apart. His only two sons. I have two of my three still with me. So from that regards, I'm very fortunate. Steve wrote a book, um, Don't Forget Me. He's raised over a million dollars for the Chris and Kelly Hope Foundation. He is a rock star. But I remember talking to Steve one time. I said, you know, Steve, one of the hardest things I ever had to do was kick Seth out of my house after he had overdosed and he wanted to come back in, I think we let him in for a day or two and then he was already stealing and doing things from the boys, you know, taking money from the, stealing things from the boys and then selling them. And I kicked him out and I drove him downtown Cedar Rapids on a cold November day, handed them a hundred dollar bill and I pulled down on the main, the main strip down there, First Avenue and, and I just stopped, opened the car door. I said, good luck. I've, I've got three other people, my wife and my two boys, my mom and dad and my business work, my coworkers and people that really, really respect the work I do for them, the help I give them, the, the love I, I provide for them. And you don't. 
And I can't afford to have the toxicity in my, in my house, you know. I'm responsible for what happens in that house. And I could see that every time he was there, things just happened. It was just walking on eggshells. I never knew what was going to happen. I didn't know if someone was going to break in, you know, and steal, try to steal money from me um, to fund their drugs or whatever they were doing. So I kicked him out. And I drove away. <laughs> I remember looking out my rear mirror and seeing him standing there, you know, in his white shirt, coat in his hand, you know, looking at me to the rear mirror. And here's dad driving away. I would do it again. I would do it again. And I tell you, there, there is something that people say that I disagree with. And I've got into some healthy debates on social media about this. Is this term unconditional love? I think it's BS. I've never liked this word or words. I think unconditional love is setting yourself up for disaster. It's a one-way street relationship. Unconditional love by definition means basically you can do whatever you want to me. And I'm going to love you unconditionally. I can't see how that's healthy for the recipient of this belief structure or whatever you want to call it. I'm not telling you not to love the people that you are responsible for, people you care for. But I, I reframed unconditional love to this. I have limitless love, but it comes with conditions. So think about this. I will love you limitless. I have, there's no maximum amount of love I have to give you as a child or a spouse or a, a you know, relationship, whatever you want to call it. Yet, you F me over, you lie to me repeatedly, you're deceptive, you steal, you cheat, you do all these things to me. My love is limitless, but it's not unconditional. And that's something that I've learned a long time ago, how to live my life. And what happens is if you have unconditional love as your belief structure and you've got three or four people that are effing you over all the time, your life's going to be miserable, miserable. And you're just going to become king enabler of these people. And you're going to actually bring down everybody on your ship, you included. So I don't like that word. And I've actually had people on, on social media, specifically on LinkedIn, that have said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm married to an alcoholic, but I'm on... I'm supporting them unconditionally. Ah, I don't know. I don't know. Go ahead. And they'll just bring you down and everybody around you. That's not how I work. And that's enabled me to get out of situations that didn't become toxic for me. Whether it was relationships that I've had, business deals that I had, um, where somebody was deceptive towards me or took advantage of me, sure, I give them a couple, second, third, fourth, fifth chances. But at some point, you become an enabler. You're doing them more damage than you are good. So think about that for a minute. Next time someone says unconditional love, think to yourself, no, I have a limitless love, but it comes with conditions. I really, really like that frame of mind. You're trying to protect yourself. That, that I mean, what good are you to anybody else if... If you're miserable, 
You know, I talk to people. Sorry for those of you who just joined. I'm drinking the non-alcoholic beer, Brewdog, Punk AF. And I'm going to crack my second one here in a minute. Two Roots. It's their Hellas, H-E-L-L-E-S, really good. But I talk to people all the time that say, you know, Jeff, uh, my son moved back in. You know, he'd been in rehab for, for, six, for six weeks. He moved back in and he's already lying to us and he's, he hates my husband and he wants money from us and blah, 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 blah. You know, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> well, what you're doing isn't working. So do something different. Kick him out. Tell him you're done. They may die. I don't know what to tell you. They may die the way you're doing it. Um, but you can't die too. That's the, that's the problem. You can lose somebody that you care about, but you can't go down with the ship. There's, there's other people in your life that are dependent on you. You know, a spouse or an elderly parent that needs somebody to take care of in the nursing home or grandkids. And it's just like, it sounds terrible to have to say that, but rock bottom for some people is death. And it frickin' sucks. But it can't be your rock bottom. It can't be. And it's not going to be for me. And I've learned to live my life that way. It doesn't mean I didn't try to help the people around me. I did. Anyone that knows me know I did. I did everything that I could. And I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. Um, let me jump on. We're about halfway through, so i got to get going. Um, my thoughts on harm reduction. I printed this off the internet. Uh, harm reduction... As a phrase that's thrown around a lot, I'm not sure what people really uh, understand what harm reduction is. So I'm going to read this off the internet here, and uh, then I'll give you kind of what I think about harm reduction and why I think it would be, be beneficial. Harm reduction is a set of practical strategies and ideas aimed at reducing negative consequences associated with drug use. Harm reduction is also a movement for social justice built on a belief in and respect for the rights of people who use drugs. So, you know... <sighs> Let's think about this way. So you you have somebody that you care about or uh, a relative or a neighbor that is doing drugs or drinking or whatever. And think to yourself, as a society, what are we trying to avoid? What's your answer to that question? So think of somebody in your circle that has an addiction problem. What are you trying to avoid? What's the worst possible outcome for that person in your life? Okay, well, I would assume you said death because nothing is worse than death. That's the worst possible outcome or deaths, multiple deaths. So shouldn't, shouldn't we have a, as a society be responsible or be morally concerned with preventing deaths first and then everything else after that? We'll deal with it. But I was talking with a friend one day and I said, you know, Every sober person, and personally, I hate that word sober. Uh, I've never liked that word or alcoholic or addict, but unfortunately I have to use them today. Every sober person at one point in their life had a day where it was that day, it was the last day that they ever drank or the last day they ever did drugs or the last day for something and their life changed around. December 24th, 2017 was the last day I had alcohol. December 23rd, 2017, I had no plan to quit. I was drinking. We were down in Florida at our condo, drinking, grilling, having a great time. Got drunk. Probably had a fight. 
um, woke up the next morning and said, hmm, that's it. I've been drinking since fifth grade. <laughs> Something's got to change. You know, this alcohol is not just magically showing up in my mouth. I'm putting it in there. I'm responsible. So I quit. I quit 2017. 14 months after Seth died. And um, again, going back to that day, imagine if I was to die December 23rd. I didn't make it to the 24th. I never would have had that day of reckoning where I realized that I had to quit. Well, think about a drug addict who dies. Well, you Seth, for example. Imagine a world where Seth could have bought heroin and you, whatever you want to think about the stigma, you know, whatever. Let's, let's, let's deal with this like humans and not judgmental people. You know, addicts and alcoholics, they're, they're just, they're normal people like us. They're just fighting things. And we're all fighting things. And if you're watching this today and you're perfect, then don't watch my show because this is, show is not for people who are perfect. This show is for people like me that aren't perfect. But think Seth, for example. Seth buys heroin. <clears throat> okay. I'm pretty certain Seth wasn't trying to die. Pretty certain. I'm guessing he just wanted to get high. And whatever he was doing to get high wasn't enough, so he bought heroin. And uh, there was fentanyl in it. Killed him instantly. Never made it out of his chair. What if we had a world where Seth could have went somewhere, had his heroin tested, just hypothetically, put the political agenda aside, put everything aside, and just imagine right now you're watching this podcast and you have a chi you have a child or children. Pick one of them and have them die tonight of a heroin overdose with fentanyl. And you'll understand where I'm coming from. Till that happens to you, you probably won't understand what I'm about to say. But imagine your son who died, or daughter who died, or husband or spouse or whomever died. If they would have had the ability to test the heroin that they took. I'm not saying make it legal. I'm saying just being able to test it, not get arrested. So they could have that one more day to live. That one more day like I had to figure out that I need to quit. But everybody that quits doing drugs has that one day. They made it that one day. And I'm asking, I'm pleading as a society that we look at drugs differently than we, the way we currently look at it. We lock people up. We don't try to help them battle with their post-traumatic stress or their depression or their anxiety or their bipolarism, whatever label people want to, attention deficit, whatever we want to put on people, we just lock them up. We're not helping them. They get out. They're not trained to deal with society. They go back into what they were doing. So I don't know what the right answers are. I'm just hoping that the next Seth has that extra day, has the ability to see October 5th, 2016. Maybe Seth on October 5th, 2016 would have stopped and he'd still be alive today to see his granddaughter, to see his daughter, Brighton. She's here, by the way. She's upstairs with my other son playing. Beautiful Brighton, that's what I call her. She's five years old. Maybe if Seth would have, uh, she was born three weeks after Seth died. But maybe Seth would have stopped doing drugs had he seen his daughter. 
Maybe that would have been his aha moment. Maybe that would have been his why, his purpose in life. She was born three weeks after he died. He didn't get that opportunity because fentanyl killed him, not heroin. Fentanyl did. So think about that. Harm reduction. Buy that extra day. Worst case scenarios we're trying to prevent. That's all I'm asking. I'm not, I'm not saying legalize every drug. I mean, this turns into such a ridiculous argument. All I'm going to say is that whatever stance you have, take one of your children, have them die of heroin laced with fentanyl, and your position will certainly change or be validated. One of the two. It won't stay the same. Purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. I believe that wholeheartedly. So harm reduction is kind of what I just talked about. So anyway, what's my thoughts on harm reduction? I don't know. I'll do more research on it. I'm going to bring some experts on the show. Um, there's a lot of people that are advocates of this. I certainly see the psychedelic industry booming. I certainly see a lot of research that was, um, that was done in the 70s, that the drug war got really big and all this research got kind of put destroyed or hidden or covered up or whatever you want to call it. Psychedelic research to help Alzheimer's, to give uh, you know pain relief for end of life, people dying so we don't pump them up with morphine and fentanyl, all these things just to numb their pain. I mean, some of these psychedelics can actually let people die with dignity. Uh, you know, uh, so there's Alzheimer's research, there's attention deficit research, there's actually addiction research with brainwave technology. There's so many neat, innovative ideas that are methods being looked at today to help addicts. So we just need that one extra day. That's all I'm asking for. That's all I'm asking for. One day. And maybe that one day will be you. Maybe you need that one day. You know, there's 100,000 people that died last year from for overdoses. It was 56,000 five years ago. You do the math. Somebody close to you is going to die from overdose eventually if these numbers keep going up. 50 to 100,000 is 100%. So... 200,000 and then 400,000. When is this going to end? You tell me. Throw more people in jail, make the laws tougher. You know, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is. Um, okay, so what advice would you give to parents with younger children? What, they, what can they do to help their kids stay off the path of addiction? Uh, the number one thing I would say is prepare. Be prepared. Be prepared for the inevitability of what is coming down the road. For parents that are not talking about drugs and alcohol and vaping and sex and all these things, um, if you don't take the bull by the horns and have these discussions, then life will make that decision for you. If you don't make those decisions, life will. And your children are going to be sooner than later spending more time with outside of your bubble than inside of it. When they're little, you can control that. How young is too young? I don't know. I don't know. We have our five-year-old granddaughter here, and I talk to her about stuff all the time. About what I don't talk about drugs and alcohol. She doesn't understand that. But I talk about what addictions are, what an addiction is. And I can show them by just taking their phone away and watching how they act. And I can say, this is what an addiction is. When you don't have something and your body gets all hyper and excited and mad. And when you're an adult and you're drinking alcohol and doing drugs and you don't do them, the same thing happens as if I take your phone away. So there's things you can do. There's... There's no right answers. There's, there's wrong ways we can do things, certainly. And the wrong ways are to put our head in the sand and ignore these things. There's no question that, that, that to me. I'd say being prepared is the number one thing I would tell, uh, tell parents uh, that, you know, pain is coming. Death is certain. It doesn't go in the order. I lost a son, a wife, and a mom in that order. 
most people, it's the other way around. Hopefully never a son or a daughter. Um, but we bury our grandparents and our parents first and pets, uh, possibly a spouse, but never our kids. I want the complete opposite order. So just be prepared for what life throws at you. That's, that's, my, that's my advice for that. Looking back, is there anything you would have done differently? This is my fourth question. So I'm, I'm halfway through a little bit more, but looking back, is there anything you would have done differently? Uh, no, with a caveat. I think I would have been more attentive to what Seth was going through and my wife was going through. I would have been more attentive. And I say that from a lens of meditation. That meditation has taught me, has shown me, has demonstrated to me how poor I was at paying attention to thoughts and images and um, the narratives that we all play. So would I have done anything differently? Yeah, I would have been a better listener. I've done le- I would have done less talking, less lecturing, and more listening. What they say, you have two ears and one mouth, you want to listen twice as much as you talk. I have a problem with that because with attention deficit, I like to talk. But I certainly learned some valuable lessons when Seth was 13, 14, 15, and 16. Uh, that I that I did I did do a poor job I think if I was to assess my parenting skills, and I certainly learned that Roman and Ian now I'm becoming a much better listener. So that's the main thing I would have done differently. I don't really think I I don't go back in time and play the guilt card. It's unproductive. It's um it's not going to put me in a good place. I replay scenarios occasionally to try to learn from them, but I certainly don't torture myself. There's not a damn thing I could have done to prevent what happened. When you're drinking and smoking and stealing and getting arrested and, you know, doing all the things, you know, marijuana, cocaine, heroin, you're just taking a gun and you're just spinning that that barrel and you're just pulling the trigger and, you know, something's going to happen. I don't know any successful drug addicts or alcoholics or liars or anybody that does anything that's a, you know, destructive behavior. I don't know anyone that's ever been successful doing it long term. I mean, it'll catch up with you eventually. Okay. Does your strength and ability to keep moving forward come from faith, a belief in God? Talk about why you don't believe in God and how you identify as an agnostic and how you define faith. Wow. A loaded question. Okay. Let me think about this a second because this is pretty heavy and this is pretty deep and this is the 43rd minute mark of this podcast and I possibly should have started this off with this being the first part of the show, Um, but here we are. Uh, I have never felt a reason to inject a celestial entity into my life. I just never felt compelled to put that on something else. For example, I understand the desire or the utility in the belief structure that there's something orchestrating all this, that we really don't have any control, that we have control of, you know, whether I want to drink 
a non-alcoholic beer, but I don't have a lot of control on other things. Like they're, like they're, like they're pre-designed, like things happen for a reason. Matter of fact, the very first blog I ever wrote was my disbelief in that whole concept. I don't think things happen for a reason. I, I think things happen and we make our own reasons. That, that's what I think. Now, this isn't something I even argue with people anymore because nobody freaking knows anything. If you think you know more than I do, then you have some connection to something that apparently doesn't communicate very well with me. And they've left me off the, uh, you know, the information line there. And somehow you have a better deal than I have, which seems unfair that I can't see what you see. So from that regards, I never felt that I was going to play that game. And so, yeah, sure. I've lost a son, a wife, and you know, my mom lately, and I, I've had alcoholism problems. I've had compulsive gambling problems, financial problems. Sure. I have plenty of reasons to call to a, an entity, an omniscient, omnipresent, present, um, thing that I can put my faith into that, Hey, you know what? Take care of me. I've never, I've never felt compelled to do that. I, I don't know. I, I, I someone tell me, I don't know. I'm, I, I've always been comfortable. I've said this since I was a child, since I was 1617 when we all looked to the heavens and we're in awe and inspiration. We go, wow, this just can't be luck. This just can't be a big bang and we just showed up. You know, there's got to be something up there, some puppet master, you know, in control of all this, orchestrating this, like uh, an ant farm, you know, watching us every day, you know, build things and eat, you know, do terrible things and uh, like literally like an ant farm, you know, like, you know, shake the ant farm, watch us run around and kick it and stuff and make us live a chaotic life and then, you know, kill some and make some live. It's like, I, I, I just, I just never felt comfortable with that. And certainly I look up to the heavens and I think to myself, this can't be just random luck, but I'm not going to subscribe it to something claim that I know something that I don't. And I'm just, I'm uncomfortable with that. Most of my friends, 85% of them are people of faith. And I, I mean, the religious faith. And I don't, I don't think religion owns that word. And I think I take offense to that when people say that they, they use the word faith as if they own the right of the emotion behind the word faith. And I just, I think that's, I don't think that's fair. I, I think the word faith can be very subjective. Um, faith to me is, you know, I had faith that when the doctor prescribed Adderall to Seth, he wouldn't get addicted. And Seth had faith that the heroin he took wasn't going to be laced with fentanyl. So, you know, I, faith is a subjective term and nobody can say they own the rights to defining it. And so when people of religion or people of, of people that want to say that they, they, that they're man, that they're a man of faith and you're not Jeff, I'm like, well, you just define it differently. I'm, if someone can tell me what I'm doing is not a man of faith and I don't know what island they live on because I don't drink, I don't smoke. I started the nonprofit. I wrote a book. I dedicate my whole life to teaching kids about alcohol and substance abuse um, I buried a child. I buried a wife. I buried my mom. Um, I'm in the best emotional state I've ever been in my life. I've donated more money this year to charity I've ever had in my entire life. So if I'm destined to go to some hell because I don't believe in some God, then that's not a God I want to believe in. That's a devil, I guess. I don't know what else to say. 
my best friend, one of my best friends, Kenyon Murray, told me one time, the, sub, the faith was the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And I, I said in my book once, because people were talking about, well, Jeff, how can you have morality without a belief in God? Or how can you, you know, um, how can you, uh, you know, aren't you afraid about going to hell? Blah, 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 blah. And quite honestly, I'm not, because um, I, I don't believe in heaven or hell. I'm just comfortable not knowing. I'm not saying there isn't a heaven and hell. I just haven't seen evidence to make me believe in either one. And that's the problem with people that are super religious is when I say I don't believe in heaven or hell, then they get all mad with me. And it's like, I, I just don't believe, I don't believe in Bigfoot because I haven't seen Bigfoot. I don't believe in ghosts because I haven't seen a ghost. So why would I believe in heaven and hell when I haven't seen it? You know, and, and it, I'm a pragmatic mind. I'm a rational person. I'm a, I, you know, I, I'm an evidence-based skeptic. Um, but at the same token, am I willing to entertain the idea that this isn't all luck? Absolutely. I just haven't seen the evidence. So I'm an agnostic. I'm not an atheist. An atheist claims that they know there isn't a God. I don't know. I, I perfectly am comfortable saying that. And anybody that watches this and looks at me and has a different opinion on me, well, then so be it. Because I certainly don't have a different opinion of you. You know, if that's not an, an, a judgment in itself, is when a religious person judges me, but then they ask me not to be judgmental. You know, and I think that's ironic because I don't look at religious people any different than I do that are secular people at all. They're just people. And the more the 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 honest to, <laughs> the honest to God truth with all this stuff is I am more concerned with your behavior than I am what you believe. You can be a man of God and be an asshole. I want nothing to do with you. You can be an atheist and be an asshole. I want nothing to do with you. So I, I have a limited amount of time on this planet. I want to spend it with people that I want to be around. So I don't really care what you believe. I care how you behave. How do you treat people? How do you treat yourself? How do you treat your spouse? How do you treat your parents? How do you treat your kids? You know, your neighbors. That's all I care about. We spend so much time on social media arguing with people about, are you an anti-vaxxer? Are you a Trump supporter? Are you, are you an atheist? And it's like, are you, are you gay? Are you trans? It's like, who gives a shit? <laughs> I mean, seriously, who really cares? As long as anything you do doesn't infringe on what I do day to day, okay? Which really, nobody is stopping me from sleeping in, from getting up early to working out to drinking non-alcoholic beer to, to reading a book or reading whatever I want to do, going to church. Nobody's stopping me from any of that. Yet we get so caught up in what happens on social media that we adversely affect our lives. And this is one of the reasons why I don't, I don't watch the news. I've been, I've been accused by people that know me very well that I'm uninformed. You know, I'd rather be dumb and happy than be knowing everything and be miserable. That's just me. So I don't follow a lot of stuff on, on, on the news. I don't watch the news at all. I haven't had the TV on news in years in my house. And it's just kind of how I live my life. I'm going to read this real quick. I know we're, this has been a very fast hour, so I may go a little bit over an hour. But I'm going to read this on page 194 in my book I wrote that I think makes it clear kind of my position on this. Uh, it's my book. It's my chapter called Evolution of Self. And this should very much clearly lay out my proposition to people, what I submit to people. And to stop arguing and, and debating with people about is there a God or not, because um, quite honestly, I don't really know. And uh, someday, maybe if there is a God, I'll find out. And if there is a kind God, a just God, 
then I should be rewarded for what I'm doing now and not penalized. Okay. That's just how I think about it. So, um, but here, let me read these two paragraphs and this will, this will make sense. Um, if you are living your life with divine inspiration and a vivid understanding of what awaits you in the afterlife, a clear mission as to why you are here, then I assume you are trying your best to make sure that this is the place you will eventually end up. Heaven, in this regard, is the final destination on your celestial journey. It would make sense that you would live an inspired life in the here and now. The motivation and desire to do good and to lead others by example ought to come into sharp focus if the odyssey through eternity is known to you. So that paragraph is dedicated to my religious friends who claim that they know something I don't, which is awesome. I, most people know things I don't know. I'm not that smart. So with that proposition, they ought to lead an inspired life. They ought to do good because they're going to be rewarded when they're gone. That's beautiful. That's poetic. That's perfect. I have no problem with that. So this is now for my secular or atheist friends. However, if you are reluctant to subscribe to any form of an afterlife, as some do, you should have tremendous appreciation and gratitude for what you have now, as this is the only life you will ever have. With that perspective, I imagine you are inclined to look at life now as a true gift not to be wasted. I submit to you that either personally held belief system, right or wrong, has the potential to allow the individual to live a very inspired life and to do good. Isn't that the whole essence of humanity is to do good? Not what you believe, okay? So maybe I'm looking at this the wrong way, but I don't think what you believe should prohibit you from being a good human. If it does, then I don't want to believe what you believe because I just want to be a good human. So with that, I'm going to close the box on God and the afterlife and all that. I'm in awe of what is here. I'm grateful for every breath I take. I love my life. I'm comfortable knowing that the place I go when I die is probably the same place where I was before I was born. Nowhere. I'm comfortable with that. Um, I had someone the other day that was talking to me about possibly, you know, wanting to communicate with, with the deceased loved ones uh, through, a, through a, a, a psychic or a, um, a, um, a medium, you know, to speak to Seth or something or Prudence. And I'm like, well, first of all, <laughs> if that was really possible, I, I shouldn't have to pay anyone to do that. I would think I could just communicate with them, you know. Well, I would have to go through somebody that charges a fee for me to communicate. I think there'd be too much potential for manipulation there. Maybe I'm ignorant there. I have Seth right here. I talk to him every day. That's all I need. I have enough inspiration in my life. I don't, I don't need any more. I'm perfectly, perfectly comfortable knowing that I don't know where people go when they die. And I don't know where I'm going to go when I die. But I sure in hell right now, I'm not worried about that because I'm only concerned with living the best life I can, creating heaven on earth right now, right at this moment. That's what I'm focused on. Okay, Jeff, how do you deal with grief? Well, I do a couple things uh, that I like to do every day. I meditate every day. I love mindful meditation. It's taught me so much. I wish I'd done it my whole life. Uh, I pretty much started about a year, two years after Seth died. Meditation has, thought, has taught me how to be aware 
slow down my mind, focus on my breathing, be attentive to where thoughts come from, and then also where they go. I think a beautiful idea that I would like to leave you with is the concept of impermanence. Okay, what, what is impermanence, Jeff? Big word, right? Actually, I heard it on a Sam Harris podcast. Impermanence is everything comes to an end. So you, you may be at Christmas with your family and you may look around the table going, man, you know, next year there may be some people that aren't here. You know, grandpa could die, you know. Um, you know I got to really enjoy what I have right now. You know, every moment I have could be the last moment. Think about that. There is a last moment for everything. There's a last breath that I take. There's a last breath that you take. There's a last time that you tell somebody you love them for whatever reason, a car crash, cancer, plane crash, you know, whatever it could be. So let's be grateful for what we have. That's the beauty of life. You know, it's, it's, we spend so much time on what happens when we're not here. It's like, screw that. <laughs> I'm living right now. I'm focused on what happens right now. I am so much more grateful with every relationship I have in my life from the simple fact that I've lost people that I love. And that has taught me the valuable, painful lesson of impermanence. So how can impermanence help you? Let's say you're going through suicidal ideation or you're you know, battling addiction. Everything ends. Every urge ends. Every thought ends. For someone who's contemplating suicide, they could, they could just trick their brain and say, well, okay, that's not my thought. That's somebody else's thought that I randomly picked up and it's going to just die and go away. The thought's going to die. I'm not going to die. You know, that's how, and I've had suicidal ideation. I had it as recently as three months ago after my wife died. I talked about it on a podcast. Uh, but I, I, I did certainly realize after a little while that that thought was going to go away. So even the best of times die, yet the worst of times die as well. So the idea of impermanence can get you through the day. It's got me through the day. With everything you have gone through and the undertaking of your Living Undeterred Project, how do you make sure you're taking care of your own mental health? Okay, well, meditation and exercise and reading are the three things I do, I do religiously. Pardon, I just thought that was a good time to throw that word in there. Um, meditation, reading, an hour on my elliptical every single day. Those are things I don't skip. I'd rather not eat or sleep than skip those things for me. So that's how I deal with, with my uh, you know, mental health. Um, and, and grief is a tough thing because I don't like that word. Because, again, it's like sobriety. It's like all these things. That it, 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 it's like suffering. They're, these are words that imply a, a struggle. And what I like to say is, you know, as Viktor Frankl said, you know, death is my opportunity. Grief is my opportunity. Instead of fighting grief or I'm in a battle with these things. No, these are, these are opportunities. Grief Grief is not unique to me. Every single human being that's ever lived has suffered grief. My situation may be unique to me. Losing a child to heroin. 99% of the world hasn't dealt with that. Um, so sure, my, my situation may be unique, but the grief itself isn't. And I know that, and I'm trained my brain now to really handle that. And uh, people ask, you know, how, how can you be doing what you do, you know, every day? I have my tough moments. I have challenges. I'm, I'm a human being. Um, I get down. I, I, I tried depression a few times. I hated it, so I quit. I know I joke about that, and that probably offends mental health experts and people in the 
depression business, but it doesn't work for me. I, I suck at being sad. I don't like it. I hate it. I really do. I hate it. It's not fun. I don't enjoy it. I want to do things that are fun and I, what I enjoy. Depression, just I don't have the time for it. I think with attention deficit, you know, I get depressed for 15, 20 minutes. I'm like, okay, this, this is stupid. This sucks. <laughs> you know, I, I've had long-term bouts of uh, sadness. Um, but I can honestly tell you I've never had depression because depression to me would be a lingering state of emotion. I've had depressive moments, but not depression. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it does for me. Uh, I've heard you talk about disease versus choice when it comes to alcoholism and addiction. Can you expand on your beliefs? Yeah, I certainly can. Uh, I'm no expert. I have no clinical background in any of this stuff. So just bear with me on this. Um, I think whichever one you believe, it will become. So I'll give you an example. Um, if you believe that addiction, well, just say addiction or alcohol, let's talk about alcoholism. It's an easy one to pick on right now. So let's just say that you, uh, your grandparents are alcoholics, your parents are alcoholics, your brothers and sisters are alcoholics, your cat's an alcoholic, your fish is an alcoholic. So I mean, man, what the hell, you're, you have no choice. You have to be an alcoholic. So you become an alcoholic and, and you, you conveniently say, and, and maybe it's been proven medically that, that it is in your genes. And so you're predisposed, you know, but certainly don't have to be predetermined. You predetermine your destiny. You may be predisposed. Your genes may say X, but you can certainly with uh, a lot of different methods that I talk about in the book and that I've had on the podcast, um, get this to more of a choice option versus a disease. So I used to argue with people with this and spend a ridiculous amount of time early in my journey with this whole thing I'm in, just mental health and substance abuse and addiction world that I seem to have got drug into. Um, and now I don't because I'm not going to argue with someone that says it's a disease because for them, whatever they believe, they will become. I don't know. I, I, I've been meeting people, tremendous people, Patrick Moore, um, people on, on, on my site, uh, Amy Olseth, that have some great insight on this. Uh, I was able to quit cold turkey after 40 years of heavy drinking, 35 years of heavy drinking. So I was an alcoholic by definition, but was there a disease gene in my family? I, I don't know. I mean... Alcoholism can be covered up in families. I mean, I, I know my mom and dad aren't, but I don't know a lot about my grandparents and my grandparents before that. Um, but I don't think any, any family tree, you have to go very far to find alcoholism. I, I think we all have at some point the addiction gene in, in our genes. But what is addiction anyway? I mean, I think that that term gets thrown around so haphazardly and so uh, it's weaponized. It's like, aren't we all addicts? Find me a human being that's not an addict. One human being that's not an addict. I didn't say alcoholic. I said addict. We're all addicts. All of us are addicts at some capacity. It's the good addictions that we want. Telling the truth, exercise, eating healthy. It's the bad addictions, the negative habits that we want to stay away from. Lying, stealing, cheating, smoking, drinking, those type of things. Um, 
So again, disease choice, I don't know. It's probably a combination of both. It's like nature and nurture. Everyone wants to argue that. I'm like, no, it's nature and nurture. I think it's disease and choice. And quite honestly, who cares? Who cares? Who cares what I think? I was able to quit drinking. So I know it works for Jeff Johnston. If you're struggling, you got to find a way to quit drinking. You shouldn't care about anybody else or anything else. You should find a way. And if you want to believe in your own mind that it's a choice and you want to quit drinking, then you're right. If you want to believe it's a disease, then you need to go get some medication or go see somebody to help you fix the disease. And you'll be right there as well. So I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't tell you. I've, I've stopped trying to argue with people. Uh, I just think there's, there's too many people that conveniently use that as a, a crutch or an excuse without really testing the choice methodology or mindset. They're just willing to subscribe to the fact that somebody told them they're uh, have an alcoholic gene in their family. And I, I think, I think there's another way to look at this again. I'm still learning about this and I'm open to any suggestions. You often talk about having ADD and it's a superpower. Yeah, it is for me. Uh, ADD has been the best thing. And as a matter of fact, let me rephrase that. My outline said ADD. I hate the last D. The last D stands for disorder. This ain't no disorder. This is a superpower. Anybody that has attention deficit, which is probably majority of the population, the human population has some attention deficit issues. It ain't no curse. You don't need to take a lot of medication, maybe some if you're high on the spectrum of attention deficit. Uh, but uh, I think if it's presented at a young age as a different narrative, I think it can become a tremendous tool for you. Uh, it drives me. My attention deficit, all my report cards, you can ask my, my, my dad, and I would say my mom, but she just passed away, but you could ask them both, all my report cards. Little Jeffy doesn't sit still. Little Jeffy drawing pictures. Little Jeffy... You know, I was looking out the window and that was like fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth grade. I never made honor roll in high school, never made honor roll in college. I mean, I sucked at standard standardization. I couldn't remember things. I couldn't put my friends, you know, could sit there and put charts and graphs and models in their heads. I, I couldn't do that. You know, the, 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 the word problems, you know, a, a log is floating down a river and there's a northwest wind and it's four miles an hour and the wind. Sh I, I'm done. I, I have no chance to figure that out. I'm still that way. But you give me something like death to make my life better, I can do that. I, I, I figured out ways to do that. So I don't know which is a more valuable tool, you know, being smart and passing tests or to be able to handle the inevitable things that life throws at us. I don't know. You tell me. Um, like I said, I'd rather be uninformed and happy than be smart and unhappy. Uh, and I've thought that way my whole life. Um, but I never did good in school. So all you kids out there are parents of kids that are struggling, be patient. Uh, attention deficit can be a beautiful thing if harnessed in the right way. Some of the greatest athletes and greatest musicians and artists and uh, you know, actors and people are very intense people. They have attention deficit. It's a great thing, okay? What do I fear the most? Easy question. Hands down, anyone that knows me. Spiders. 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 If, if, if spiders were eradicated. I would, I would give all my money I have to find a cure to eradicate spiders. I don't give me that they eat mosquitoes and all this crap. I fine. I'll take mosquitoes over spiders any day, but any type of spider, I absolutely hate. Uh, and the next thing on top of that would be clowns. I'm terrified of clowns. And I think in the book I talked about, I'm probably not gonna be able to find it now, but in the book, I talked about the time when Roman on my board over here, drew um, 
what's called a spider clown. Apparently the internet has these things. Here it is right here. So it's the chapter that I have called Life Committed. And uh, Roman wrote this really funny thing on my board over here. It says, always look forwards and never look backwards unless you are learning. Or if there is a clown with eight legs, Roman Johnston. So that's my son torturing me. But yeah, spiders is really the only, I don't fear. I've dove 100 feet down at night in the ocean on a reef with sharks. I've handled snakes. I've, you know, been in scary places. Um, but you give me a little tiny spider, I'm done. What is my end goal? Why don't we end the show with this question? I think this is important. What is my end goal? Here's my end goal. And I didn't rehearse this at all. But my end goal is, is many things. But I, I'd say probably, probably this. Is I want to take the time I have left in this beautiful thing called life. I don't want to waste it. I don't want to squander it. I certainly don't have time to be negative, angry, or depressed. And I want to live the most inspired life in honor of the people I've lost, in memory of them. Yet, I want to live for the living. It's important for me to reframe that that way. I want to honor the deceased, yet live for the living. So I don't want to live for those who are gone because I run the risk of being sad and depressed and crying and looking at pictures all the time and getting depressed and woe is me. It's like, no, no, they're not coming back. I, 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 there's nothing I can do to bring them back. I certainly don't want to bring back the pain. I don't want to bring back what I went through, the, the suffering, but I certainly can control or mitigate or manage the, the suffering that I am going through. But I don't want to go back to the intense pain that I went through. Big difference between pain and suffering. Um, someone the other day was talking to me about uh, survival. They said, Jeff, you know, uh, you're in survival mode. You know, you're having the... I said, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not in survival mode. I'm in evolution mode. I'm evolving. I'm becoming a better person. A great friend of mine, Ben Rogers, on my podcast. I, I love Ben to, to death. He's a great guy. I had this written up here because I can never remember this, this quote, but I, he has it as a tattoo in his arm. Non sum qualis aram. That's what it is. And it's by the, I want to say Greek poet. Maybe not Greek, but I know he's a poet. Horace. And it stands for, I am not what I used to be. And that is such a great quote. I'm not what I used to be. So I'm not in survival mode. What happened to me wasn't tragic. It's unfortunate. Certainly doesn't have to be the ending. It can be a beginning of something beautiful. But I'm not in survival mode. I'm in evolution mode. I'm evolving I'm shedding skin. I'm becoming a better man, a better son, a better dad, a better friend, a better griever, <laughs> a better widower, and not bitter. And so that's how I want to end the show tonight. 
somehow through all this, I have become a better man, not a bitter man. And I ask you at the end of the day or in the morning, when you look in the mirror, ask yourself that question. What can I do today to become better, not bitter? And don't think of, you know, 20 things. Think of two things. And for me, it's meditation and exercise and healthy eating too. But so think of it that way. What can you do each day to become a better person, not a bitter person? Okay. So thank you very much. Hour and 12 minutes, one of my longest podcasts. I really, really enjoyed this. I had a lot of other questions I didn't get to tonight. I went off on some things probably too long. But as I end the year, the first year of Living Undeterred, I think of the people I met, the heroism, the honesty, the vulnerability. And I'm excited about the people I haven't met that I will be meeting that will change my life going forwards. And hopefully this becomes a we movement or story versus a me story. And far too many people that are in the motivational speaking or life coaching, whatever you want to call it, is so much about them. It's a me, 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 or rah, rah, rah. It's like, I want to hear your story. I want to hear what happened to you and why it happened and how you become a better person. And if you haven't become better, what's holding you back? You know, I personally believe that every single person has a why somewhere inside of you. And you just haven't found it yet. When you find your why, you'll find your way. That's a very simple quote I like to live my life by. So we all have a why. Mine was provided to me in the form of death. And that's how I look at it. It's the only way to look at it. There's no other way to look at it. No other way to look at it. The other side of the fence is uh, a side of the fence that I don't have any desire to be on. So with that, thank you. I'm so excited about next year. Molly Nordlocken and I are shutting things down for a while. Next week uh, after this podcast will be a best of she's putting together. And the tour, the Living Undeterred tour, May 9th, 2022 will be an amazing journey. I, I am so excited. I have a lot of work to do. Um, I have a lot of states I have to get in front of. I have a lot of tour coordinators. Uh, we have to hire a tour coordinator. I have tour sponsors. I have state partners that we're looking for. So anybody watching this, I need to get the word out. We have about 15 states that I have good relationships with. So I have a lot more to go. But I may be on the road for 95 days in an RV raising a million dollars for mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. How I'm going to do it, I don't know. I've got like 14,000 in my nonprofit. So a million minus 14,000. I got a long ways to go, but I ain't going to do it by myself. So... All right, so thank you very much. I love you all. This has been an honor. And as I end every show, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and live undeterred.